Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We began last week our summer series through the miracles of our Savior. We want to take this whole summer just to see the glory of Jesus on display. We want to see, uh, behold our God and see His amazing glory. And every miracle that Jesus performs teaches us something different. There are layers uh, to what Jesus is doing. When Jesus does one thing, he's doing a billion things. He is teaching in his miracles. He's preaching. He's giving object lessons. He's making analogies. He's pointing us to greater realities. He's loving the hurting, the lost. He's helping those who are hurting. He's reversing the curse. He's shining forth his glory. He is doing amazing things. And last week we started by looking at Mark chapter 2 where Jesus heals the paralyzed man, dropped through the roof by his friends, and the first thing he says to him is, son, your sins are forgiven. And we kind of think, well, that's not what I came for. But Jesus knows our deepest need. We think we know what our needs are, but Jesus actually knows our deepest needs. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees say, wait, you can't say that. No one can forgive sin except for God alone. And Jesus says, you're right. You, have, you got the point. I am claiming to be God, and explicitly we see the primary reason in Mark chapter 2 for why Jesus performs miracles. So which is easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven, or is it easier to say, get up, take up your pallet, and walk? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, because there's no way to affirm that that has actually happened. I can just say, Kyle, your sins are forgiven. We don't see like a halo around his head. We don't see glory emanating from his face. We don't know if that actually happened. But if I say to a paralyzed man, get up and walk, if that doesn't happen, I prove to be a fraud. So Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, in order to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins, that I am God, I say to this man, pick up your pallet and walk. So the primary reason, as we saw last week, as to why Jesus performs miracles is to validate the claims that he's making about himself. He's making absolutely staggering claims. And he's going to back them up. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus forgives sins. Jesus is God. The disciples are there in Mark chapter 2. They see it. They go, this guy's God. There's no way this guy isn't God. But only two chapters later in Mark chapter 4, the disciples are going to scratch their head again and say, man, who is this guy? Who is this man? Just two chapters later in Mark chapter 4, they're going to look and they're going to say, there's something different. There's something we don't know who this guy is. And they're going to have it answered for them as Jesus performs the second miracle that we're going to look at this morning. Mark is writing his gospel to prove that Jesus is king, but he's not king the way that we think he's king. He is God, and he is going to reign by being conquered, by dying on the cross. But first, Mark has to prove that Jesus is king. So he proves that by saying, okay, prophecy foretold a coming Messiah. Prophecy tells us there's going to be a king. That's Jesus. Uh, Jesus had a herald. The king needs a herald. Jesus' herald was John the Baptist. Jesus has to have a coronation because a king has to have a coronation, and that's his baptism. He has to have authority. He has to have followers. He has authority over his disciples. He has authority over men. He tells them what to do, and they do it. He has authority over Satan. He has authority over sin, over the supernatural realm, over the physical realm with disease. Jesus is king. In Mark chapter 4, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus starts teaching. There's really only three, uh, two sections in Mark where there are long teaching sections. One is in chapter 4 and one is in chapter 13. Jesus teaches for a very long time. And 
And he finishes teaching publicly, but he's not done teaching because he's going to bring his disciples into a boat and he has a lesson to teach to them. And I believe he has this same lesson to teach to you and to me this morning. So let's read it together. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, the day when he was teaching, starting teaching in parables and teaching for a very long time, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd, they took Jesus along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They then became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Father, this is a familiar story for many of us. A story that we have sung many times in songs about of Um, Even this morning, you are in the midst of the storm. Through the storm, you are Lord of all. But God, I pray that you would help us this morning. Give us the gift of illumination to see, to hear these words anew and afresh as if we were hearing this story for the very first time. That we would be amazed by Jesus the way that the disciples are amazed by him. It's so easy to turn this book into a textbook and make it academic and formulaic. And that is not what Mark wants us to do with his gospel this morning. He wants us at the end of our time together to say, who is this? I trust him with my whole heart because I know who he is. He is God. He is Jesus. So Father, I pray practically for those in this room that are going through storms. Maybe they are asking the exact same question that the disciples asked. I know I've asked it myself and many of us have in the midst of suffering. God, do you care? Do you care? May we hear Jesus' response this morning. And may those who are going through suffering this morning be encouraged. You're not indifferent. You are right there with them in the boat. God, for those who are not going through suffering, who are on a perfectly calm sea right now, God, I pray that they would hear and with wisdom take these words and hold on to them for the moment where the hurricane begins. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. May we see Christ. Show us Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. 
All of the synoptic gospels, that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this miracle. But actually, Mark, who is the shortest of the synoptic gospels, he actually give us, gives us the most detailed explanation of what happens in this miracle. We said last week that Mark is really Peter's gospel written by Mark because Mark is using Peter as his eyewitness. And here we see eyewitness details. We see two main eyewitness details from Peter's remembrance of this account. The first is that other boats in verse 36 are going with their boat. And the second is that Jesus is asleep on a cushion. It's a very specific Greek word for a pillow that you would lay your head on that he probably took with him or that somebody gave to him. It's not something that you have lying around in a ship. Why is this important? This is important because so many people will say that these books, these gospel accounts were made up. They were fabricated. If they were, there would be no reason why these quote-unquote seemingly insignificant details are here in the text. There's a very interesting book by a a man who used to be a part of the FBI. He became a Christian, and he was working in the FBI. He was a director of certain uh, parts of the FBI, and And one of the aspects of what his job entailed was listening to eyewitness testimony and figuring out, is this eyewitness testimony true? Does it corroborate with other eyewitness evidence and testimony? And he wrote a book on the Gospels through the lens of an FBI director who would hear and would see accounts that are given, that are written, that are spoken, whether they're true or not. And he said, this section, this miracle in the Gospel of Mark proved for him, hands down, this is a true event. This is a real event. This is a true book written by eyewitness testimony because there's these strange, insignificant, seemingly insignificant details. Mark is writing down from Peter's remembrance what has happened. And Peter tells us through Mark's pen in verse 35 that on the day that Jesus was teaching, very long day of teaching, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the the sea. He's the one who initiates this. He's sovereign over all things. He's Lord of all. And he says to his disciples, I'm done speaking publicly. My lessons in teaching are done, but I have a lesson that you need to learn. Let's get into the boat together and we'll learn it. And they go to the other side. They're moving and leaving the crowd. Verse 36, they took along with Jesus in the boat just as he was. He's there and other boats are with him. That tells us not only this is an eyewitness testimony, but that also tells us something very interesting about the circumstances surrounding this storm. Other boats are on the sea with this boat. So what does that tell us about the conditions of the weather of that day? It looks totally fine. Nobody's jumping into a boat saying, let's sail across the sea when it looks like a hurricane's coming. So they say, you know what, we're good. This is a great day for sailing. Let's get into the boat. Let's sail across the Sea of Galilee. This will be a fun day to sail. Everybody felt safe, not a cloud in the sky. But verse 37, there is a fierce gale of wind that arises. Fierce gale. It's one word in the Greek for a hurricane. A hurricane shows up on the sea. Matthew 8, verse 24, the synoptic account of this, the parallel passage, says that um, Matthew uses two words, seismos megos. Um, Seismos, that's Seismic, it's a storm, there's something crazy happening. Megas, mega, it's a mega storm that descends. Luke tells us that the storm descends upon them as they're in the boat. So it's a great word to say it's descending because what happens, the Sea of Galilee is 12 miles by 8 miles. It's 600 feet below sea level. 
and it sits right underneath Mount Hermon. And so the freezing cold air from Mount Hermon descends onto the sea and the weather can change in an instant. In fact, in 1992, there was one such storm like this that generated 10 feet high waves on the lake and winds up to 80 miles per hour causing flooding in the city of Tiberias. This is a huge storm. Mark tells us that the waves are breaking over the boat so much that the boat's already filling up with water. We know that this is an intense storm because the, the disciples who are experienced sailors are going to start freaking out. They're going to say, we're done. This is it. There's no way we're getting out of this. Can you imagine? Again, try with sanctified imagination to put yourself in that boat. We just so often read, teacher, do you care that we're perishing? But we don't put ourselves in the disciple sandals. Imagine you are in the boat with them. You can barely hear anything because this storm is so intense. Wind, waves, rain, and you're yelling. Maybe Peter and Andrew, brothers, right? They're yelling to each other, Peter, hurry up and lash this down to the mast. Hurry up and do this. They're trying with all their might. And you can just see Peter saying, we can get out of this. And at one point, Andrew says, Peter, we're not making it. Just stop. There's no, there's no reason to try anything anymore. We're not making it. Maybe Peter stops what he's doing and says, where's Jesus? Let's get the master. We have to do something because we're not going to make it. We're going to die. Where is Jesus? Verse 38. He's asleep. He's asleep in the stern on a cushion. He's sleeping. This displays Jesus' humanity. He is 100% God, 100% man at the exact same time. And here we see his humanity on display. He's been teaching an entire day. He's exhausted, and so he's asleep. Even in the midst of a hurricane, he is exhausted and he is asleep. But we also see his deity on display. He's asleep not just because he's fully human. He's asleep because he's fully God and he can rest. He has no anxiety over what's happening. He's sovereign over what's happening. He's in control. In fact, a sleeping Jesus is more in control than us when we're wide awake. He's asleep. The snoring sovereign is snoring because he's sovereign. And what do the disciples do? They wake him and they said to him, and listen to these words. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We're dying, and you don't care. You don't even care that we're dying. Imagine those being the first words that you hear when you wake up. Again, if I'm Jesus, which you're glad I'm not, I'm not the Savior, I need a Savior, because my reaction would be, that's no way to talk to somebody that's just woken up. <laughs> Excuse me very much. Uh, why would you assume that about me? Uh, I was exhausted. Come on. But what does Jesus do? He's going to get up. He's going to calm the wind. He's going to calm the waves. He's going to still the sea. And then he's going to turn to them and he's going to say, why are you afraid? He's responding to their statement. Do you not even care? that we're perishing. You must not care. Look at the disciples' assumption. Nice people don't let their friends go through bad things. People that love others will save them from harm. We're in the middle of a storm that's going to get us killed 
and you aren't doing anything about it, you must not love us. It's a very dark day when sailors are calling upon a carpenter for a solution in the midst of a storm. But they're doing it because they are drawing a line from their circumstances to the character of God. They're looking at God's character through the lens of their suffering and they're saying, this is not fun. And if you loved us, you would keep us from things that aren't fun. In this moment, and I know we've all had it, the disciples' fear trumps their theology. They know, they know better than to say this. But in the moment, their fear trumps their theology. How many times has this happened? Have you ever prayed this? I've prayed this before. God, do you care? God, do you see? Surely if you saw, you would do something about this. Surely if you saw and you cared, you would do something about this. What are you doing? How many times has this happened to us? We ask the same thing that the disciples ask. What are you doing, Jesus? What are you doing? This is informative on two levels for us, on a practical level and a theological level. This is informative for us practically. We tend to equate worry with concern. We tend to equate worry with concern. I don't know if you've ever been in the midst of something stressful and you're just starting to freak out. And you hang out with somebody and you say, I'm freaking out about this and they just don't seem to be freaking out. And you look at them and you go, this is a big deal to me. And if this were a big deal to you, you'd freak out like I'm freaking out. What's going on? You must not care. The disciples are asking that question here. You must not care, Jesus, because we're freaking out and you aren't. This is a big deal to us. It's not to you. But the reality is, even though we tend to get frustrated when others are not sharing our anxiety, it's actually a really good thing that people don't do that. It's a Christ-like thing when people don't do that. Don't equate worry with concern. Many people will share your concerns without getting worried, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's sharing their concern, but he's not worried about it. He doesn't enter into their worry. He doesn't need to enter into their worry. And that's frustrating them. I don't know if that's ever frustrated you before. But practically, we're learning a lesson already from these disciples in the way Jesus is dealing with them. Theologically, number two, we, we learn the second lesson. We do this all the time. We tend to draw a line from our circumstances to the character of God. I'm going through suffering. That means God must not love me. I'm going through difficulties. That means God must not care. He must not see. We assume that a loving God would never let us suffer. Anyone who has ever tried to live a life of faith knows this, feels this. Jesus is going to get up in verse 39, and he's going to say, be still. And then in verse 40, he's going to say, why are you afraid? He's going to turn to the disciples and say, why are you afraid? Ask a question of them. Why are you afraid? This is one of those where I think Peter, somewhere in the white space, goes, you've got to be kidding me. Who asks that question? You just claimed to be the son of God over here, and you healed a paralyzed man. You raised him up so that he could walk again. You claim to be God, and yet you don't know why we're afraid? I'll tell you why we're afraid. We were dying. <laughs> Look at our surroundings. We were dying. But maybe deeper than that, we were afraid that you didn't care that we were dying. We were afraid that we were dying, but we were afraid even deeper than that that you didn't care. Because if you cared, you would have done something about it. You would have done something. I think if that conversation had happened, 
Jesus would have said, oh, your premise is wrong. Your premise is wrong. I do allow bad things to happen to the people that I love. In fact, I ordain, I purpose, I plan, I predestine, I make it happen because I love you. Who was it who said, I think we should get in a boat right now and head over to the other side? It was Jesus. He's the one who says, if your premise is a loving God would never allow me to suffer, you've got, you've got the wrong premise and you'll never be able to worship God. Our God is the God who is not indifferent to suffering by any means. He knows our suffering. Psalms tells us that he holds every tear that we cry in a bottle. He is there with us in the boat as we suffer. But he allows suffering. He allows pain to chisel away the rough edges. As we talked about this morning in Family Bible Hour, to knock out those legs from under us, that we're trusting in something else. It's the most loving thing that our God can do to say to us, what you are trusting in won't work and it won't satisfy. And if you don't give it up, I'm going to have to take it away from you. That's the most loving thing he can do. And sometimes he uses trials, suffering, difficulties. Every storm in our lives has a purpose. Every storm that you go through has a purpose. Jesus is the one who says, we're in a boat, let's go through the storm together. I'll be with you. He does not watch his children squirming in the midst of suffering and think, this is awesome, this is great. He weeps with us. He cries with us. And he says, there's something being produced that you can't even imagine, but you have to trust me. You have to trust me. Do you ever draw a line from your circumstances to the character of God? We should do the opposite, right? Which is do the exact opposite. Who does God claim to be in the Bible? And let his character revealed to us in his word dictate how we view him in the midst of our suffering and how we view our suffering. We should see a loving God who plans and purposes everything for our good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. A plan that's not to devastate or destroy, but to give us hope in a future. A plan to love us and to care for us. We're taught practically and theologically by these disciples as they ask a very simple question, one that we've asked ourselves. Do you even care? Do you even care? Verse 39, Jesus gets up and rebukes the wind. And he said to the sea, hush, be still. I just, I'm amazed by those words. Those are words that I use with Tyler, my two-year-old son. Be still. Stop it. If I'm in a storm, I would feel like I would need different words to stop the storm. Like, hey, stop, help, no more. Like, and he just, like a toddler, stop. Just stop this. Be still. Could the disciples even hear what he said? Did he have to tell them what he said? Did he yell? We don't know what exactly transpired, but we do know two things, two amazing things. Number one, the sea obeys. The winds die down, and it became perfectly calm. The, the creation obeys. Nature obeys. Jesus says, do what I tell you to do, and nature obeys. And Mark gives us a very specific detail. I remember a long time ago, reading this passage 
and thinking, well, this is redundant. The wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Well, of course the wind became calm because the wind just died down. We're redundant here. Let's save our ink. But this isn't redundant. This is very specific. The wind died down and it, meaning the sea and everything about the storm and its effects, become calm. This is supernatural. This is miraculous. I remember growing up watching an animated cartoon of uh, this event. There was like this, you know, miracles of Jesus and, and this event was in this little movie. And, you know, Jesus gets up, huge storm, boats rocking, and Jesus says, be still. And slowly the color palette of the movie changes from this darkness to this light. And, and slowly the boat starts kind of just going back to normal. And, and then, ah, oh, calm sets in. But that's not what happened. The Bible says that he says, hush, be still, and instantly everything stops. Instantaneous, no boat rocking. Instantly the sea becomes as glass. And why does Mark include this detail? Because he's showing us something that he's already showed us in Mark chapter 2. Remember, when Jesus said to the paralyzed man, get up and walk, did the paralyzed man stand up and go, oh man, it's really hard to walk. I need some physical therapy. All of my muscles have atrophied. All of my joints are fused together. No, he just walks. He can walk instantly. Why? Because Jesus takes care of the problem and the effects of the problem. And that's something we're going to see constantly in the book of Mark. That's something we're going to see constantly with the miracles of our Savior. He deals with the problem and instantly the effects of the problem are gone. He's going to raise a, a little girl from the dead and she's going to start running around like little girls do. He's going to raise uh, Peter's mother-in-law. She's sick and on her deathbed and he's going to heal her and she's going to get up and serve and cook a, a meal like mother-in-laws do. She's going to do that. She's, when Jesus performs a miracle, it does not take time, save one miracle in the Bible that we'll get to, it does not take time for the effects to wear off. And that's the reality with you and with me when he does one of the greatest miracles of all and gives us a new heart. He doesn't look at us and say, I really want to save you, but first you got to clean yourself up. He says, let me clean you once and for all. Once and for all, let me cleanse you. You're mine. So the first thing that's amazing is the storm actually obeys. The second thing that stands out to me is there's no incantation here. There's no, by the power of such and such, when Jesus speaks, there's no raising a wand. There's nothing here. Jesus isn't rolling up his sleeves about to perform some magic act. He doesn't have to call upon some higher power. By the power of such and such, I tell you, be still. He is the power, and therefore he just speaks, and the storm listens and the storm obeys. The winds die down, and it becomes perfectly calm. And there isn't a word that's spoken. The disciples are standing there in their boat, just jaws on the ground, on the deck of the ship. Just what is happening? What is going on? We were just about to die, and now it's the perfect day out on the sea. What's going on? Jesus turns to them, he breaks the silence, and he says in verse 40, why are you afraid? And he's going to diagnose their problem. 
My Bible says, do you still have no faith? I don't think that's the best translation. It's literally, where is your faith? Where has your faith gone? What? You, were, you were trusting in something. Your faith was in something, and now it's not. Just like we studied in Family Bible Hour this morning, it's not about the amount of faith that you have. It's about the object of your faith. Jesus is saying, what's the object of your faith, disciples? What had it been? Maybe in the midst of the storm, they were trusting in their boat. This is a rough storm, but we've been through worse, and we'll get through this one. Because this boat, my great-granddaddy built this boat, and it'll, it'll withstand it. And then as they see that it's starting to sink, okay, throw that one out. Now let's trust in our muscles. Let's trust, we'll, we'll get the buckets, we'll throw the water out, we can trust in our muscles, we'll be fine. And then as they realize their muscles can't keep up with the water going in the boat, they say, well, let's trust our history. Let's trust our experience. We've been through storms before. We've made it. And they finally say, well, we can't trust in anything. Let's ask the Savior. If only they had started with the Savior. Hey, we've got problems and we can't fix them. Can you please help? That's where they should have started. But Jesus asks them not How strong is your faith? But rather, where is your faith? Where has your faith been placed? Imagine that you're falling off of a cliff. And as you're falling, you're looking for something to grab onto. And you see a large stick, a branch sticking out of the cliff. How strong does your trust in that stick have to be for it to hold you up? Do you have to, as you're falling, think, okay, I weigh a certain amount, and that stick looks like it has a diameter of this amount, and that ratio proportion, I can't do that. Christian can do that. Um, this, this looks like, uh, I won't snap it. We'll be good. Here we go, and hang on. No, you just say, I'm dying, and I'll reach out to anything. I'll grab hold of anything. How strong does your faith have to be in Jesus? It's not the strength of your faith it's the, the strength of his grip on you. And if you just reach out and say, I'm, I'm dying, I need help, and you grab onto him, he'll never let you go. It's not about how you feel about the branch. All that matters is there's a branch. Will you trust? Will you trust? I think it's very interesting that none of these disciples were thinking that. But maybe we would think, we'd look at him and we'd say, man, why didn't they trust in God? Maybe we do that even in our relationships. Maybe we do that with a friend when they're struggling to trust in God and we think, man, I, I don't know if I'd struggle like that. Can I just say, if you, if you find it a little bit easier to trust in God than other people, don't ever look down on them. Don't ever say, come on, just trust God. Um, pray for them and realize the only reason that you have an ability to say, oh, I trust God is because God gave you the gift of faith. But don't ever look down or be hard on those who believe less, who struggle with doubts. That's what Jude would tell us. Have mercy on them. Verse 40, Jesus identifies the problem. Your faith has changed. It was in me. It's in something else. How does the story end? This is fascinating to me. Verse 41, the disciples became, now if we're writing this, we'd say overjoyed with the fact that they're living another day. 
the disciples became ecstatic with the fact that their boat was still above the water. But what does the text say? They became very much afraid. This just does not make sense to me. They're afraid at the beginning. Why are you afraid? Verse 40. And verse 41, they're very much afraid. So in the midst of a hurricane that's about to kill them, they're afraid. On a perfect day on the sea, they're very much afraid. Why? What's happening here? They were afraid of the storm because the storm was unmanageable, untamable, had power beyond their wildest dreams, and they couldn't control it. And there's a man standing in their boat who just spoke a word and what they couldn't control, he instantly controlled. So I'm afraid of what I can't control. And when I have somebody in my boat who easily controlled that, I really can't control him. I'm going I'm to be much more afraid that the person who just easily controlled what was unmanageable is standing right next to me. When what is terrifying you is overcome by somebody in your boat, you're going to be terrified by them. You're going to be incredibly terrified. Jesus is just as unmanageable as the storm. He's just as powerful in an unmanageable way, uncontrollable. He has infinitely more power than the storm, so his disciples have infinitely less control over him. But there's a huge difference between Jesus and a storm. A storm doesn't love you. Nature just wants to wear you down. But Jesus loves you. You might say, yeah, but if I place my trust in Jesus, then he's out of my control. And yes, you're right. He's out of your control. And he will do things that you don't understand. But just as unbounded as his power is, so too is his wisdom and his love unimaginably unbounded, uncontrollable. He is untamably in love with you and for you. And here's the reality. If you have a God who is big enough and powerful enough to be mad at because he did not stop the storm in your life, then you have a God who's big enough and powerful enough to have reasons for that storm that are beyond your comprehension. If you have a God in your life who is big enough and powerful enough that you cry out to to say, you could have done something about my suffering and you didn't, then you have a God who is big enough and powerful enough to have wisdom and love for you that you can't understand, but you can trust. Elizabeth Elliot said it this way, God is God, and since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will, and that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. I have no idea what God's up to. We know a little bit, as revealed for us in Scripture. But we, we don't know. It's like what C.S. Lewis says about Aslan. When, when the beavers are talking in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and they're talking to the children, and they're talking about Aslan. The children have never met Aslan, and they find out that Aslan is a lion, and they're terrified. The beavers are talking about this great lion. He's amazing. He's awesome. It's going to be great to see him. We're so glad he's here. And the four Pevensey kids are saying, excuse me, we're talking about a lion. I don't know if I want to meet a lion, but if we're so happy about meeting the lion, he must be tame. He must be controlled. And he must be safe. 
And so that's what Lucy asks. Oh, is he safe? You remember this, the comment that the beavers make? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion. You don't tame a lion. Of course he's not safe. But he is what? He's good. You can't bind his power. You can't control his power and authority. But you can know without a shadow of a doubt that that authority and power is controlled by a good king. He's good. He's good. Nobody said anything about God being safe. But God is good. And he is king. These disciples are coming into contact with the God of the universe. They become very much afraid. They turn to one another. They whisper, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. They, they get it. Just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees understood in Mark chapter 2, only God can control and command nature. Jesus just controlled and commanded nature. Then Jesus must be God. They know that they are seeing Jesus do what only God can do. And therefore Jesus has to be God. What's the answer to their question? Who is this? He's God. He's God, very God. We come to the end of this miracle, and there's something very unusual about this miracle. Normally, when we see the disciples just making fools of themselves, we just, we like to laugh at them. We kind of just enjoy saying, oh, you know, Peter with the the foot-shaped mouth, and oh, they're just doing dumb things, left and right, and Sometimes we look down on them and we think that we would never do that. I don't know about you, but when I read this miracle, I don't respond that way. I don't think, oh, you blew it again, disciples. What's wrong with you? I sympathize. I sympathize because I've been in the boat with them. I've been in the midst of a storm with them. And I've said the exact same words, okay, God, do you care? Because if you did, I think you'd do something now. I found it hard to trust God. I've had God, as it were, say to me, where is your faith? Trust me. When was the last time you asked that question? God, do you even care? God, are you indifferent? Do you care about my pain? Do you care about my suffering? I think Mark wants us to jump into the boat with the disciples, to ask that question with the disciples, And I think he wants us to see that we have a resource in the midst of the storm that can help us answer that question. I think that Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this miracle, writes this narrative in a very specific way that as we are reading it, we might start to think about another story. There's clues here. There's another account where there's a boat, There's a storm. The main characters are asleep. The sailors are shouting, we're going to die. Divine intervention has to happen. A storm is calmed, and the the sailors in both stories become even more afraid when the storm is calmed. One is in the New Testament that we looked at. One's in the Old Testament, in the book of Jonah. Remember in the book of Jonah, Jonah's asleep. The sailors wake him up. We're going to die. Divine intervention has to happen, and how is the storm stilled? Jonah says, you have to throw me over. You have to throw me into the water. Matthew, in his gospel, tells us explicitly from the lips of Jesus 
that one who is greater than Jonah is here. And that the sign of Jonah will be given by Jesus to the people who are looking on. That sign clearly is Jesus will die and he'll be in the ground for three days, just like Jonah was in the belly of the well three days, but he came out and so too Jesus will be resurrected and raised from the grave. But do you remember how the storm was calm with Jonah? Jonah's thrown in and he's swallowed by a fish. Matthew, Luke, and I believe John as well would point to Jesus as being the greater Jonah, the true Jonah, who calms the ultimate storm. But how does he do it? He's thrown into the storm that can eternally kill us. We're not just talking a physical storm here. We're talking about the reality that we all face, because of our sin and our offense against the holy God, we have done things that are morally wrong. We're all lawbreakers. And we have defied our amazing creator who wants to be with us, who wants to be in a relationship with us. And we have said, we don't want to be in that relationship. Or we want it on our terms. And our terms say, we get to make the rules. We don't like your rules. Even if God were to force us into heaven with that heart, we would hate heaven. Why do we want to be in heaven? We don't love God. We want to be as far away from him as possible. And God says, I don't want my people that I made, that I love, I don't want them dying infinitely, eternally. I'm going to save them. And so what does he do? He sends Jesus, who lives the perfect, sinless life that you and I needed to live to get to heaven on our own, but we failed to live because we are lawbreakers. We are sinful people, every one of us. And then Jesus dies on the cross, taking our punishment that we deserve for our sin. Jesus didn't deserve it, but we deserve it. We deserve it, rightfully so. And Jesus says, I will take your punishment upon myself. And at the cross, a beautiful exchange happens. At the cross, Jesus' perfection, his sinlessness, is taken from him and given to you and to me by faith, not by anything that we can do. And our sinful record that deserves to be punished is taken by God and placed upon Jesus. And Jesus treats, God treats Jesus as if he had lived our sinful lives so that God can treat us as if we had lived Jesus' sinless life. Jesus dies in our place. Three days he's in the tomb. He is raised from the dead, conquering sin and death. And he says to each and every one of us, will you receive forgiveness for sin? Repent, turn from sin, follow me. How did he make that possible? Because God the Father took his son and graciously on our behalf threw him into the sea of his wrath threw him into the sea of the punishment that we deserve. The Bible tells us that Jesus did that for the joy that was set before him. He willingly said, throw me into the sea because I want them to live. And that was the only way. And here's the reality. If the sight of Jesus bowing his head in that ultimate storm is burned into the core of your being, then you'll never say, God, do you even care? Because you have a resource. You know he cares because he bowed his head in that ultimate storm so that you would never have to go through that. You would never have to bear the punishment that you and I rightfully deserve for our sin. If you have a God who lovingly took your place 
and did not abandon you in the ultimate storm? What makes you think he'll abandon you in the much smaller storms that you're experiencing now? And that's not to make light of the storms that you're going through. You may be going through unimaginable suffering, but God put Jesus through worse and has done the harder thing. So he will always be with you in the smaller things. And one day, one blessed glorious day, he's going to return and destroy every storm for all of eternity and we'll be with him forever. If you let the reality of the cross and the love that Jesus has for you in your darkest hour penetrate you to the deepest part of your being, then you will know without a shadow of a doubt, he loves you. He loves you. And he'll never leave you. And he'll never forsake you. And he cares about you. And every suffering that he allows you to go through, it's for a purpose. And he'll never leave you in the midst of it. And he cries along with you. And he cares for you. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? His name is Jesus. And he is God. Father, we thank you for this amazing miracle that we're able to look at. And I pray that we would take uh, these words from Mark as we leave here and that we would remember the reality of the resource that we have in a crucified and risen Savior who did the much harder thing on our behalf so that we wouldn't ever have to wonder, do you love me? He went through unimaginable suffering so that when we go through suffering, we know he empathizes with us. He'll never leave us and nothing will ever separate us from his love, not even the worst pain that we go through. So God, I pray for those in this room that are going through suffering. There are many that are suffering right now. And they may be asking that question, do you care? And I pray that they would hear this morning, you do care. And you're with them. And you are working for your glory and for their good. God, I pray for any in this room who do not know that resource, do not know without a shadow of a doubt that if they were to die today, their sins would be paid for and they would live life everlasting with you because of your work on the cross. God, I pray today would be the day that they would turn from sin and turn to the Savior. They would see the disciples' question, who is this? And they would be able to answer it themselves. This man is Jesus, and he is worthy of my affection. He's worthy of my allegiance. And that we all would, as we're falling off of the cliff of life, as it were, into the very depths of the punishment that we deserve, we would reach out to the branch of Christ. He is strong to save. And even with weak faith like a mustard seed, we would cry out, I am dying and I need a Savior. And we would cling to Jesus. Father, I pray that we, with one heart, with one mind, as one body of Christ in this church, would be prepared for every moment of suffering, that our theology would trump our fears, and that Christ would be honored as he remains the sole object of our faith. Thank you for holding us fast, even when we loosen our grip and let go. Thank you for promising never to leave us or forsake us. And thank you for ensuring that we will 
make it safely home by your amazing grace. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's stand together and respond by singing.